All right, I'm here today with um, Knut Witkowski. I hope I'm saying your name correctly. You've, you do. You've probably seen some of his videos. I remember I, I first became aware of you um, about a year ago, actually, when your videos appeared on YouTube and then were were taken down. Um, you were you're a, 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 prom, a prominent epidemiologist. You're an epidemiologist for 35 years. Um, he spent 15 years working with one of the leading epidemiologists in Germany, um, taught in Cairo and in Beirut before coming to the United States, where he was the head of biostatistics, epidemiology and research design at Rockefeller University. So you've got a distinguished career. You've, I don't think it's saying too much to say that you know what you're talking about when you talk about epidemiology. Um, and yet when you spoke out, you were critical of the lockdowns um, about a year ago and your views were censored, essentially. Could well, that just... happened to many uh, people, many epidemiologists. And it's not that the views that I uh, presented were so rare. In fact, we had later the Great Barrington Declaration, and there was something like, I think it's about, now about 50,000 uh, epidemiologists and health policy experts who have expressed their concerns uh, that universal mitigation is the wrong strategy and that it should be replaced by selective mitigation where we are protecting the vulnerable while the virus is spreading more or less unimpeded among the healthy and the young. So why, and that doesn't sound very controversial to me, why was that view, why, why were your videos taken down from YouTube? Because that was at that time not the official policy that the government had and the WHO. And at that time, um, YouTube said, uh, decided that a democratic discussion of different scientific positions would not be consistent with their philosophy. Mm -hmm. Has that changed now? Are you able to post on YouTube now and and get your well, I have out never there? I have never posted myself. Mm. Um, I think it's now after the Great Barrington Declaration and the failure of the traditional strategies trying to control a virus that cannot be controlled. Um, I think I'm currently not blocked, uh, but that may change every minute. Right, right, right. We never know. So can you tell me a little bit about your views on the lockdowns, you know, a, a year a year on, you know, we've been living this with this in my state, it's a year to the day now. Um, do you feel like your views have been vindicated? I think they have been vindicated in the scientific world, but they're still not adapted by the politicians who are talking about science when in fact, whatever they're doing has no backing in science. 
Mm-hmm. And you've said some things about um, how how lockdowns can actually make things worse in terms of virus mutation. Could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, when a curve gets flattened, and that was the initial reason for having lockdowns for a couple of weeks, it was a year ago. Mm-hmm. And it should be ended after a couple of weeks. If the lockdowns then last longer than just a couple of weeks, then they give the virus enough time to develop successively enough mutations to overcome the multiclonal immune response that humans develop. And then suddenly we have a new virus that can spreading as if there had been no other virus before. Mm-hmm. And in the United States, that happened in November. So even with the lockdown, we got rid, we had herd immunity in the United States. Um, early in spring, we had that in the Northeast. In the South, the curve was flattened and uh, the events were delayed. But even in October there, we had herd immunity and it would have ended if not in Spain and Italy, the even more severe lockdowns had incubated new strains of the virus that were resistant against human immunity that had developed against the other. And so these strains started spreading again, uh, first in Europe and in particular in the UK, and then after two weeks also in the United States, which led to the next wave. And as this next wave was flattened again, we have uh, resistant strain, other resistant strains that are developing now. It is unfortunately Um, vicious cycle that will never end unless politicians start to actually uh, listen to what epidemiologists have to say. So can you explain a little bit what, if the lockdowns hadn't been put in place, what's the normal trajectory for a virus and its mutations? What what normally happens if people are allowed to mingle and, and gather together and all that? How does a virus normally progress? Okay. Typically, our polyclonal immune response develops, let's say, six different antibodies. And the the viruses mutate at the rate of one to two mutations a month. So in the normal course of an epidemic of six weeks, there is not enough time for the virus to overcome immunity from all of these six antibodies. However, if we give the virus three months time, then in some people or in some sequences of people, uh, there will be six of these escape mutations tried out by the virus and collected, and then the virus can spread again as if there had been no virus before. And so the way I'm picturing this is if 
if the virus is spreading throughout the population, it's kind of hitting everyone at the same time. And so whatever mutations there are, the our immune systems are dealing with those at the same time. Whereas if you're shutting segments of the population off from each other, there's fresh ground for the virus to go to and create more mutations. Is that sort of right? Is that a little bit what you're saying? Yeah, it is. If everybody gets in, infected at the same time, then there will be nowhere more than just one mutation. And if one of the six antibodies gets um, becomes ineffective, then we still have five others and that's enough. Mm-hmm. That's how nature makes sure that every respiratory virus disease epidemic ends naturally within just a few weeks. And that's what happened. We have seen that happening over the last 100 years, um, two or three times every year. This is just normal. And we probably had many uh, coronavirus epidemics over the last 100 years um, because we couldn't really sequence until very recently. And so we don't know whether a flu that we had was actually influenza or was coronavirus because they are not distinguishable by the phenotype. It looks very much the same. Right, right. And up until now, we haven't had this kind of mass testing of asymptomatic people all over the place. So even the way that we talk about cases today versus you know how people might have talked about flu cases a couple of years ago, we're talking about different things, right? Yeah, the word case has uh, morphed, has been changed to remain something else. And that happened in the midst of this epidemic. And for an epidemiologist, this is always something that you try to avoid because changing the definition in the midst of endemic just is causing confusion. Mm-hmm. Do you think that it's... Is there, in there, is there any sense at all behind testing asymptomatic people? Not much. Uh, in particular, not for respiratory virus disease. Because uh, people are asymptomatic, most of them. And so it, it doesn't really make sense to test people who don't have symptoms and never will have symptoms. Mm-hmm. Um, one question, just to clarify something you said earlier, could you just explain a little bit what the the um, multiclonal immune response and the polyclonal immune response, what are those? Okay, it just means that we develop not only one antibody, but several. Okay. So one should say poly several antibodies, because there could always be one or maybe even two mutations in a particular subject. And nature makes sure that there is enough backup so that there are a couple of other uh, antibodies so that one or two mutations in a subject will not render the immune response ineffective. Right, right. And there's also been a lot of talk in the news about um, T-cell resistance to um, to SARS-CoV-2. And particularly what I find really interesting is that um, they're seeing that people who have had prior exposure, not only to SARS-CoV-2, but to 
earlier coronaviruses, they have T cell protection against this new one. Um, is that is that encouraging? Is that normal? What do you think about normal? That? Okay. So, and uh, the immune system first makes antibodies against a virus that bind either the virus or bind the cells that are infected to have them killed. Uh, after some time, if there is no more virus around, there is no need to have antibodies circulating. So the immune system stores the memory of these antibodies in memory T cells, mm -hmm. and then there are no more circulating antibodies until we are exposed to this or a very similar virus again. And then the memory T cells became active and new antibodies against that virus are being created within a few hours. And so there's not enough time for the virus to replicate. There's no more incubation period. And so when we get reinfected, which is normal, then the immune system can deal with that immediately and there will be no phenotype. So we don't get ill. It just happens without us even noticing that it happens. Just in the background, it's just yep. going on. So one thing I'm wondering about when you talk about um, sort of suppressing the virus's ability to mutate and the how the, the flattening the curve restrictions have allowed the virus to, to mutate more than it would have otherwise, when I look at the the numbers, when I look at the the different locations, so let's say like California, which had very heavy restrictions compared to Florida, which you know didn't have very much, and now is is pretty much completely open, or even like Sweden versus the UK. When I look at these different places, heavy lockdown versus you know minimal lockdown or no lockdown at all, to me it looks like the lockdowns aren't having any impact at all on the virus transmission. Am I wrong about that? Uh, we definitely had no impact of the lockdowns in the Northeast of the United States. Okay. Uh, the South of the United States is one of the few places in the world where we can actually see an effect of the lockdown because there the virus arrived later so the virus arrived after the lockdowns had already started. Mm. And that is why when the South reopened uh, in August, I think it was about, uh, it, suddenly the delayed infections took place and there was uh, another wave. Uh, but that was the only place where we have seen that effect. In other places, the lockdown said no, uh, visible effect or recognizable effect at all. And that wasn't because some people argue that that's the, that the wave in the South was just because of seasonality, that it's just normally viruses would, or a respiratory virus would hit the South at that time. What do you think about that? Yeah, we always have the snowstorms in August in Texas. <laughs> that, that was a little unusual, yeah. It's the same as it was in Spain. 
Mm. So the escape mutation, the first round of escape mutations were incubated by the lockdowns in Spain and France, and in particular Spain, and the most draconian lockdowns I'm aware of in Europe. Mm-hmm. And so there was also some flattening, and that flattening was enough uh, to incubate new strains that would then spread in Europe first, in the UK, they took over 80% of the UK very soon, and then they came to the United States, and here they started the new wave in November. So... The, to, to the extent that the lockdowns did suppress or did, did sort of flatten the curve, control, control spread, um, is your view that it simply postponed the pain yes. or did it actually, but did it actually make it worse too? Well, the infections are being postponed. Okay. Um, and that results in the next wave being created. There is another effect that these universal mitigations have. Let's start with something that should have been done. We knew very early on from the experience in Italy that this is a disease that hits the vulnerable and elderly the most. Yeah. Uh, because 50% of people who died were 80 years and older. And the mm-hmm. first cases in the United States were cases in a nursing home in Seattle. Mm-hmm. We knew from very early on, this is a disease of the elderly. And this is why the elderly, the nursing homes should be isolated and the elderly should be advised to self-isolate, including wearing masks and staying away from public transportation and maybe from restaurants, doing all these things that we are talking about. Unfortunately, the nursing homes were not isolated. Instead, the schools and the economy were closed, which is the opposite of what any reasonable and knowledgeable epidemiology would have advised. Mm-hmm. Now, if it is not only the elderly and vulnerable who isolate, but everybody does the same thing, then the vulnerable don't have an advantage anymore. If it's only the vulnerable who isolate, then the virus will spread among the young and the healthy for a couple of weeks, Uh, the young and healthy would develop herd immunity and then the whole epidemic would be over. And after four or six weeks, the vulnerable could rejoin, see their grandchildren again, and it's over. If everybody does the same thing, the vulnerable don't have an advantage anymore. And the whole thing takes more time, which actually makes the self-separation more difficult. But more importantly, as many of the vulnerable get infected as of the young and healthy. And if a larger proportion of the vulnerable gets infected, they actually die. And so universal mitigation, contrary to what the media uh, want to tell us and the politicians, 
universal mitigation increases the number of deaths among the vulnerable. It's a very unfortunate effect. It is something that I consider catastrophic. This control, as the politicians call it, of the epidemic led to substantially more death. Let's just look at the numbers. We have now more than 550,000 deaths in the United States that are attributed to COVID. Now, if there had been no lockdowns in Spain and France and other places, then we would never have had any COVID after October. So we would have had about 200,000 deaths in the United States, half of which happened in nursing homes. So if the nursing homes had been isolated, rather than having governors sending infectious seniors into nursing homes, we would have had only 100,000 deaths. And if there had been no universal mitigation, then this would have been only 50,000 deaths. And that's what we have with the normal uh, flu season. So this would have been no worse than other flus. That's that's really dramatic. I would I would love to see that in in sort of a visual presentation because that's um, that's that's those are some very dramatic numbers. Um, oh, there were ten times as many people were killed by the government action than by the virus itself. Yeah, and just to be clear, so when when you say um, you know with with mitigation for the elderly and the, and the, 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 those who are more susceptible for a few weeks, and then the epidemic, and then the epidemic will be over. What do you mean by over? Because I don't think you mean that the virus just disappears. What, what does that actually mean? It essentially disappears. Okay. It is, we have a basic reproduction number of about two and that means if 50% of people are immune, then only the basic reproduction number says how many people somebody who is infected can make infectious. Mm-hmm. And if half of them are immune, it's one only one person who is infected makes one other person infected. And if you go have a few more immune than the epidemic dies within a relatively short period of time, simply because somebody who is infected is meeting too many people who are already immune. Mm-hmm. And therefore, they have much of a chance to make somebody else infectious. Okay, so, so you're saying that that strain, in this case, SARS-CoV-2, actually dies out. It Yes. And that happens with every respiratory virus disease epidemic. So these epidemics the, come and then uh, after a few w- weeks they die out. So what are we what what do we see when you know we flu has been you know the inf- influenza viruses have been with us forever and they mutate are we really are we just seeing a certain strain comes and then goes and another one comes and goes and it's a constant you know creation and death of each strain? Is that just how, is that just how it works? Yes. Uh, we actually, last year, we had three epidemics. 
The first was an influenza B epidemic, and that peaked uh, end of December. Then we had an influenza A epidemic that peaked in early February. And then we had a third epidemic that peaked in mid-March, and that was the COVID epidemic. And mm -hmm. if nothing had been done, it would have been over in May or June. And yet we, we still have influenza B and influenza A. Are, are you saying that it's each year it's not the same influenza A? It's no, each, each year it's a different virus. Okay. Uh, but they are viruses of a certain type because they originate in the same animal reservoir, typically in China. Yeah. Yeah. And so, but every year it's a slightly different virus. And that's why our vaccines are not so very, not so effective, because we never know what exactly uh, the virus will be in the next season when the new vaccine is being created in the spring. Okay. And so with SARS-CoV-2, should we think of that as a virus type like influenza A or is it really a, a, a specific virus within another subtype? How, how should we sort of categorize? Um, well, it was a new type. And what we then have seen is that with the lockdowns, something happened that we had seen only once before, and that was in 1918, 19 that uh, the politicians interfered in a way that the virus was allowed to mutate and create a new variant that then could spread again. And now we have seen the same thing, the flattening the curve the, has given the virus the ability to develop a new type, a new strain, and then spread again. Okay, and you mentioned that you're talking about the Spanish flu. Um, what what was the intervention then that? Um... World War One. Oh, okay. Okay, <laughs> I get that. Certainly counts as an intervention. Um, and how how did that? What did that do to um, to contain or not contain the virus? It just created packets of people who became infected soldiers mm -hmm. and different parts of the world and it took time and so again we had in a sense a flattening of the curve that because of the activities during the war uh, young people being shipped around uh, across the world mm -hmm. and that flattening of the curve allowed the virus to escape and then start a new wave Okay. Okay. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about, just to sort of shift gears a little bit, you, uh, you started your own company a couple of years ago, and I'll, I'll let you tell us what, what the purpose of that is. What, what, what are you doing? Okay. So I rediscovered a statistical approach during the 20 years I was at Rockefeller University. Uh, a statistical approach was conceived in the 1940s, but then abandoned because it wasn't feasible. It became feasible only in 2001. And in 2001, we picked it up 
and started to evolve it, to extend it, to incorporate knowledge about genetics into the statistical method. And suddenly we could find the genetic risk factors of complex diseases in genome-wide association studies, something that had evaded people. They had all talked about the missing heritability. The heritability, of course, was not missing. It was just that the other statistical methods were too simplistic, or simplistic, I should say, sorry, mm -hmm. simplistic um, to detect them. So we detected, to cut the long story short, uh, a problem in many age-related diseases, and that is that cells have high levels of endocytosis. They take up things from the bloodstream. That is good early in life, but it can be bad later in life. And it also affects virus diseases. Because viruses, they don't live. They're dead. Mm -hmm. Just pieces of genetic information in a lipid hall. So they need to be taken in by cells via the process of endocytosis. If cells have high levels of endocytosis, they take in more cells, more viruses. And if they take in more viruses, the virus spreads more within the body and after the one-week incubation period, when the body has the antibodies to mark all infected cells so that they can be destroyed by the killer T cells, people who had a lot of replication, they have a huge wound. And it is that wound that kills people. So if we're able to reduce the replication of the virus by reducing endocytosis. And we are, if we are reducing endocytosis only by 10% for each of the seven-hour replication cycles, we have reduced the number of cells that get infected by 90%. And if there are 90% less cells that are infected, only 10% of as many cells need to be killed. And we have a very small wound that we can easily tolerate. Yeah. But the problem is how to reduce endocytosis. And people have actually shown that there is a way of doing that, and that is by intermittent fasting. Mm -hmm. Although it wasn't quite clear how that worked, and this is how where our genetic results came in, we identified that it is a reduction of a particular lipid in blood that results in a reduction of endocytosis. It's phospholipids. Phospholipids, okay. For phospholipids, there is less endocytosis. And then after we had discovered that, we could explain why a particular treatment had been affected, effective in the past, although it also had side effects, and how we could reduce the side effects and increase the effectiveness. The treatment uses alpha-cyclodextrin, which is a ring of sugar molecules. It's actually part of many food, and it's collecting lipids, phospholipids in serum, 
And then the only thing that we needed to find out was how to get the alpha-cyclodextrin into the bloodstream. And now we have a way to give that orally. So you take that as a powder or a drink or a pill in different ways. And if it gets into the bloodstream, then it reduces endocytosis. Fewer viruses are being taken up and replicated. And we have a much milder phenotype. And nobody dies anymore. Sounds pretty good. Um, is there a downside to reducing endocytosis, or, or can you can you reduce it too much? You're just mimicking what happens with fasting. Okay. So if you eat less, fewer eggs, less beef, less liver, you have lower levels of phospholipids, and we actually know that intermittent fasting helps with virus diseases. So as humans, until very recently, starvation even, was that just the normal state of life. Mm -hmm. So if we are replicating something that over the last millions of years was just normal, we have a very low risk of side effects, in fact, we may have some benefits. We may reduce the risk of developing Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, Huntington's, ALS, multiple sclerosis, atherosclerosis. All of these diseases are found in families where people have high levels of endocytosis, while in other families where people tend to have low levels of endocytosis, you don't find of these diseases. And you've discovered that through looking at, at genetic profiles? Yes, comparing uh, those who have the disease to those who don't have the disease and find out what is it that differs in their genetics. And has this been published? Is there is there something that I can link to in the show notes? Yes, we have published this about two years ago in PLOS One, and we found that out um, using cancer. As an example, cancer, the mitigation, uh, the migration of cancer cells is also driven by endocytosis. So wow. people where, who have high levels of endocytosis and cells that migrate fast and can get to the target organ like the liver or the brain before the body has antibodies or the immune system has antibodies to identify them and kill them. So it, 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 the, the phenomenon of immune activity and of phospholipids regulating endocytosis is a problem that we see in many age-related diseases, but not in all families. Mm -hmm. And this is just what nature does. Uh, half of the people have an advantage when they are young. The other half have an advantage when they are older. So whatever happens in the environment, um, half of the people may die, but the other half will survive. And this is how we have 
survive. That's how evolution works. Right. Lots of lots of variety. Um, is there a way, can can anybody go and get a test, get a genetic test to see what level of endocytosis they have? It's difficult because it's not like in uh, rare diseases of early onset that there is one particular thing that goes wrong and causes a disease. Mm-hmm. Here, the uh, gain of function mutations you will find across different uh, transporters or translocators or channels. And there is not one particular uh, SNP, one particular location that is predictive. It could be combinations of several, and it's very difficult to find out which combination actually is detrimental. It's what we see right now with the viruses. You have the D614 G mutations, which was one of the first. And now we have mutations in different, many different locations. And to evade immunity, a virus has to have several of those. Mm-hmm. So you cannot, by just looking at one particular mutation, say whether a virus strain is able to evade natural or vaccine immunity. It's combinations, and mm-hmm. that makes it difficult. So we can still not say which mutation really is making it easier and how much easier in combination which with which other mutation for a virus to evade immunity. And the same we have the diseases. Right. Okay. And so the same would apply to, there's not, there's not a single marker to find out, you know, your particular level of endocytosis. It's okay. Okay. But the product that you're talking about, um, is, is this on the market yet? Is this, um, the components are on the market. Okay. One okay. is alpha cyclodextrin, which is on the market as a dietary uh, supplement that helps with reducing body weight. Mm-hmm. And it is now becoming more and more obvious that being overweight is an important comorbidity, an important risk factor of having a more severe form of COVID. Mm-hmm. So reducing body weight is something that you should do anyway. Yeah. yeah. We have found that it also reduces the uptake of viruses. And in Europe, Alpha-cyclodextrin has an approved health claim to reduce some pre-diabetic conditions. Mm. And diabetes is also a risk factor of having a more severe type of COVID. So the only problem that we have with cyclodextrins is that they are typically not being absorbed from the intestine. Only when you take them with milk or milk fat Mm -hmm. but even then it's not guaranteed that the milk fat or the component which is capric acid and the alpha cyclodextrin are always at exactly the same location so that the alpha cyclodextrin can help 
the tetric acid can help the alpha cyclodextrin to get into the bloodstream. And so this is why we have developed and filed a patent application for a compound that makes sure that the capric acid and the alpha cyclodextrin are physically staying together mm-hmm. and traveling together until they get to the intestinal wall. Then the capric acid binds, gets digested, and that makes it exactly that location opens temporarily a gap between cells so that the alpha cyclodextrin can slip in. That is the same thing that we see or nature has developed to allow maternal antibodies to be absorbed from milk in babies. Because back to the the same theme (laughs) that babies don't have uh, their own immune system yet fully functional. Right. So they have to rely on maternal antibodies. And maternal antibodies are pretty big. So how do maternal antibodies get from the intestine into the bloodstream? And this is why milk contains fat capric acid. Interesting, so okay. Two natural products to... Uh, general, you in their natural function, capric acid with their natural function to let a larger molecule be absorbed from the intestine. And here the larger molecule is the alpha cyclodextrin, which then looks into another fat in phospholipids to collect the phospholipids, uh, which reduces the endocytosis. Okay, now the um, capric acid, is that only in mother's milk or is, is that something we would find in no, cow no, every milk? milk? Every milk, it's okay. Every milk. Interesting, interesting. It's actually not only in milk, it's also a component of coconut oil. Huh. And you can buy MCT oil mm-hmm. for a keto diet. Yeah. And MCT oil contains about 40% of capric and 60% of caprylic acid. Wow. Yeah. Our, our daughter is on the, the ketogenic diet for seizures. And so we, we go through a lot of MCT oil in this house. <laughs> uh, that's very interesting. Um, so I'm just wondering with um, the alpha cyclodextrin, um, you're saying th- these are both capric acid is in, is in milk. Where would we find alpha cyclodextrin in nature? Bacteria are using it to store sugar in a form that other organisms cannot digest. Oh, interesting. So it is a fiber. Fibers are chains of sugar molecules. But the particular thing is that they form a ring. And as humans and other mammals don't have enzymes to break that ring apart. Mm-hmm. So this is something where bacteria can store sugar in a form that humans cannot digest and take away okay. from the bacteria. Interesting. So... I guess you're solving that problem with the capric acid then. 
No, we are not solving. Okay, so the alpha cyclodextrin gets not digested. Okay. It just gets into the bloodstream. It collects some phospholipids, reduces the levels of phospholipids, and then gets excreted in the kidney. Okay. Okay. So it's just a tool passing through. It's not. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. It's a nano device. So it's it's not doing what drugs do, changing how particular cells function. It is just taking away the fatty, uh, the phospholipids. Okay. So broad question is: Are there any side effects from this, or is it possible? Could you have too much of this? Take out too many phospholipids? Is there is there any downside? Well, you may have some diarrhea, um, like with every change in the diet, you will see that with yeah. your daughter, yeah. uh, whatever you do, you, you have diarrhea because the bacteria in the intestine need to adjust to the new diet. Mm-hmm. Um, other than that, as I said, it's mimicking a state, a fasting or starvation state, and that we're we have evolved to tolerate very well. Mm-hmm. So you can stop eating for three weeks and you will be fine. But probably not three months. Three months. There have only two people who did that. I'm aware of. It was Mahatma Gandhi. Wow. And a friend of his. So they managed to starve for three months. Wow. That's and, and that didn't impact their health in a in a harmful way? I wouldn't do it. And I wouldn't <laughs> okay. recommend. Okay. Okay. Um so so you have filed you filed a patent application. What, what do you expect? What's the next step? And when can we expect to see this out on the market? Well, we're, I have been looking to find a company who markets, distributes uh, nutritional supplements and would take that on. Mm-hmm. And to my surprise, it's not so easy. I couldn't yeah. find one. And it's also, I thought that it would be something that governments would actually take on and at least consider. And that is also something that um, I didn't get responses. Everything is now focused on vaccines and money is spent uh, to have the pharmaceutical industry make vaccines and there is not much interest in something that could be a different approach. Is that worldwide you're finding that or is that more in the U.S.? Um, I'm based in the U.S. so it's difficult to say what how that is in other parts of the world. I tried other parts of the world as well uh, but then people say well how about the U.S.? So Wow. It, um, it's surprisingly difficult, uh, but I haven't given up yet. 
Okay. Well, well, good. Well, you can hopefully keep us posted um, on that because it sounds like that could be that could be very exciting on a number of fronts, not only for COVID nineteen. No, you were talking about yeah. You were talking about side effects. One of the side effects would be that you're. It takes longer to get Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, Huntington's, ALS, right. multiple sclerosis, yeah. atherosclerosis, yeah. any of those. And to be clear, I mean, you've said this already, but we're talking about a nutritional supplement, not a drug. So you're not you're not looking for FDA approval. You're just looking for, or not, not approval as a drug. Okay. But- uh, both alpha-cyclodextrin and capric acid are grass, generally recognized as safe. And in the grass notice, uh, it is already, as one of the intended uses, is alpha-cyclodextrin as a carrier of fatty acids. So that is covered. And uh, one of the intended uses is to add this to vegetable juices. So you could add 2% of alpha-cyclodextrin to vegetable juice. And you could bring that to the market in the U.S. without any formal step because it is the intended use that the FDA has already signed off on. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that is something we could bring to the market within a few weeks, two weeks, three weeks, something like that, if we can get companies together to... Uh, and their experience, because uh, it is something that is best done if by people who have the experience and know how to do that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so so right now, even alpha cyclodextrin by itself, you couldn't just—that's not available on the market. It's it's legal. Alpha cyclodextrin not- is available. So alpha cyclodextrin, as I said, is in many food. It's also a supplement that is available on the market that you wouldn't have and mct oil is available on the market but even if you combine it you wouldn't have the effect to make sure that it's always in exactly the same place right 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 so that's what we need your product from once it's once we can get it out there um I need to let you go in a few minutes, in a couple of minutes, but I just wanted to ask you quickly, do you have any thoughts on, on the COVID-19 vaccines specifically and uh, any concerns? Um, first thing is vaccines are helpful or can be helpful. What they do is they do the opposite of mitigation. They speed up the process to herd immunity. So the time until you have herd immunity with vaccination is shorter. Uh, If you're doing both of them, vaccination and mitigation, it is about what you would do, what would happen if you're sitting in a car and you're hitting the brakes and the gas at the same time. What seems to be intuitive to many people to say, well, we want to really control the virus, so we do vaccination and mitigation at the same time. Um, 
if you understand the complex dynamics of epidemics, uh, it's not working. It's actually, as I said, it's like in a car hitting the brakes and the gas at the same time. So the vaccines, uh, we have seen a couple of side effects uh, with the newer versions of these vaccines. I'm confident that this can be uh, fixed. Uh, the major problem with vaccines is that this, it takes about three months for the virus to escape, either natural immunity or vaccine immunity. Mm -hmm. So you need a new virus every three months, a new vaccine every three months, and you don't really know what it is that you need the next time around, mm -hmm. because you have to wait first until you see what are the mutations the virus develops to escape the effect of the vaccines. And then part of that three month period is already over. Right, so the same problem that we have with the flu vaccine every year. Yes, and uh, there's no, it's not a coincidence, flu and coronavirus are respiratory virus diseases and they share many features and many problems. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So are, are you saying that the sort of the best we can affect in terms of efficacy going forward with the vaccines is something similar to flu vaccines where it's going to be yeah. a different formulation every year? And, and okay. Different from, well, we don't need every week. And we need, if we stop the mitigation, if we focus on letting the epidemic run mm -hmm. while reducing the severity of the illness and preventing death. Yeah. This would be over in three months. Yeah. Even without a vaccine. Without a vaccine and with a vaccine, it takes only eight weeks. Or nine weeks. Or something like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's assuming an effective vaccine and a safe vaccine also, because as you've mentioned, there's some... Yeah, we have seen. I'm not so concerned with this. There's one uh, thing that we have seen with coronaviruses that's called antibody dependent enhancement. Right. That we don't fully understand yet to which extent it actually happens. Um, and part of the problem is to see antibody dependent enhancement, you first have to vaccinate. And then mm -hmm. somebody who is vaccinated needs to get infected again. Right. And then you could see that. And so it, it takes time to collect the data to find out uh, how big that problem actually is. And it may not be a problem. Mm -hmm. But it was a problem in earlier attempts to create a SARS-CoV-2 virus. We have seen that in animal models. Yeah. So we have okay. seen antibody-dependent enhancement, for instance, in cats. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, this is why we, it's a concern. Mm -hmm. But we're not going to know. It, how, how long do you think, what's the time frame before we see whether that's an issue or not? I think we need about a year. Okay. Um, but the good thing here is that It will the the basic knowledge will last for some time. Mm -hmm. 
it's not going to change the the you mean the virus is not going to change um, if this is a coronavirus specific problem then it won't change if, if we have mutations and if we mm-hmm. find that it doesn't affect humans uh, that this was something that was specific to cats mm-hmm. then this won't change very right, much sure. either yeah. <coughs> all right well thank you so much for coming on do any any final thoughts anything that we left out and um, i would like to stress how important it is to end this vicious cycle of um, mitigation, creating new strains leading to new mitigation. Every time this goes on, every time the virus mutates, there is a risk that the new mutation gets closer to something, a sequence that we also have in the human genome. And if that goes on and on and on, and we have never seen that ever happening on a particular strain of viruses, that that the virus mutates to get closer to the to sequences that are already part of the human genome. It will become more and more difficult for the human immune system to come Mm -hmm. up with antibodies that are specific to the virus, but do not kill human cells. Right, right. And we may end up in a situation where the immune system can't do that anymore. And then we have a problem that... Uh, is totally new and we don't know how to deal with that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it is really important for our politicians to understand that this ongoing mitigation and immune escape process could create problems that are entirely new that we have never seen before. And that is what I'm concerned about. Yeah. So, so essentially a virus that causes an autoimmune response, basically, is that what we're talking about? That, that cannot be controlled by the immune yeah. system yeah. without at the same time causing an autoimmune response. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Have we seen... Is the virus already moving in that direction? I mean, is that is that what we see as viruses? They, they become closer and closer to the host's genetic sequence? Uh, it's just the natural process mm-hmm. that uh, if a, the virus tries to evade the human immune response and the, the closer the virus sequence gets to a human sequence, the more difficult it is for the human anti, for the human immune system to find something in the virus that is sufficiently different. Mm-hmm. So the, the tendency of evading the human immune response. That makes sense. Uh, yeah. Makes it logical for the virus to become closer 
to the human system. Yeah. Yep. Or genetic. Yeah. That does sound kind of scary. Um, it is scary. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's scary. Yeah. Well, I've got to let you go. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, Thank you and, for having me. Yes. And if there's anything else that you just let me know if there's anything else you'd like me to put in the show notes, um, you can email me and I can, I can put links to whatever you'd like. Thank you. Thank you very much.